Welcome to the Readerly Report. Your hosts are Gail Weiswasser and Nicole Bonilla. We hope you will enjoy our candid book conversations, recommendations, and observations on the reading life. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to another edition of the Readerly Report. Today, Gail and I thought we would take a look at the books that feature ordinary characters and ordinary lives. Because a lot of times when we're reading books, it seems like we do a lot of reading about either, I feel like I'm either reading about New York City or comparable large cosmopolitan metropolitan area, uh, or we're reading about people who are, who don't really have money concerns. You know, we're reading about wealthy people. Rich people so we wanted to badly. take a, yeah, rich people behaving badly. <laughs> we wanted to take a look at stories that I don't know follow people who have more normal lives. So we went through our reading to see what books that we had read that that featured people who are teachers, assistants, uh, police officers, people who are making a more regular living in the United States or or wherever, wherever they may be. Uh, so Gail, should we start off with what we've been reading? Sure. So I've been kind of in a weird reading mood and not necessarily that like, <clears throat> not necessarily one that I've been happy with, but um, let's see. So I finished two books recently and um I just been in this weird, like kind of dark place with my reading. So I read When We Were Vikings by Andrew David McDonald. And um, this is a book about a sister and a brother who are living on their own because their mother has died and their father has disappeared. And the sister was born with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So she has sort of compromised mental abilities and kind of limited independence. And her older brother, who's been supporting them since they had to move out of their uncle's house because he was basically like molesting his sister, they live together and the brother has dropped out of college because he's trying to support them. And it's just about how they kind of try to get through it. So she has this fascination with Vikings. That's why it's called When We Were Vikings. And she studies Vikings a lot and she uses, she turns to Vikings for inspiration all the time and how to guide her, you know, guide her through life. And when she realizes that they are sort of in desperate financial straits, she turns to her Vikings to tell her what to do. So you're dealing with a narrator who is not a hundred percent there. or She's not, you know, as She's naive and doesn't always understand what's going on. And she's articulate. And, you know, I wrote about this in my review that the author had to walk kind of a fine line between making her seem credible as somebody with her just sort of limitations, but yet also interesting enough to want to read about. The, so the narration is is interesting, but it's, you know, ultimately a pretty sad book just because these two are facing some difficult stuff. So that was my audio and I finished that. And then I also just finished A Nearly Normal Family, which is a book by M.T. Edvardsson. It takes place in Sweden. And it's about a family where the daughter has been accused of murder. And it's told through three different perspectives, the father, the daughter, then the mother. And the question, of course, is, did she do it? And if she did, why? And if she didn't, who did it? And who's kind of trying to cover up for her? So... This was also like kind of, you know, stressful and dark. Um, I didn't love it in the end. I mean, it's lots of courtroom stuff, which was fine. But I just I, th I thought that maybe this was a, a, a casualty of this translation. But it found it really repetitive and not always convincing, especially the, the part with the daughter, because she would say one thing, contradict herself. And I mean, I guess she was only 18 years old, but I just felt she was pretty inconsistent. So it was fine. I read this for my book club and um, I was kind of glad to be done with it. So those are the two that I recently finished. And then I kind of started casting around for an audiobook, And I started with The Sundown Motel. And I realized that that is super dark and 
creepy. It's like a ghost story. And so I I turned that one off because I said, you know, this is really not my kind of book. Anything with like ghosts or supernatural or anything, murders. Yeah. So I turned that one off and I found- Oh boy. And you've got to read Ninth House. I know. We need to talk (laughs) about that because I've started it. But again, like like it's following this trajectory of books that are not like in my wheelhouse. Um, and then I started instead of Sundown Motel, I'm now doing Long Bright River, which is also Ooh. a police procedural ish about these two sisters and one's a cop and one's a heroin addict. And they live in this, you know, down and out suburb of Philly. So I'm kind of in so a So what dark made place. you pick that up? Well, I mean, are you you're gravitating or you're picking these dark books that you're finding too dark for you to read? <laughs> yeah, it's a I, I don't understand why you would pick up Long Bright River after. I know. Well, the <laughs> after problem not getting into with, Sundown Motel. Yeah. So the problem I was having with that was I was having trouble finding an audio where I had the print because you know I like to have them both. I have a whole bunch of audios that I don't have the print, but I really want to read, and I have a bunch of print that I don't have the audio. And for some reason, Scribd, which was usually so dependable, is they seem like their inventory is way cut back. And all, there's all these books I want to read or listen to, and they don't have it. So that's how I ended up with Long Bright River. It was kind of like process of elimination that I ended up with finally finding a book that I had in both had versions. Both. Yeah. And then, of course, like after I started it, I found another one that I was really excited to read in both um in both. So I'm going to give Long Bright River a chance. And then, you know, I listened to Sarah's Bookshelves live. She did an interview with Liz Moore and it was so compelling. I was like, all right, I'm just going to do it. So, but you're right. Like it's a bunch of stuff that's been kind of a little bit of a forced fit. So I did start Ninth House and you and I are reading that for the book club. I'm going to, I'm going to give it the college try and notice the pun because it takes place at Yale. I may give it a college try, but if, if I'm really having trouble, I may send you an SOS. Okay. And then we can discuss why you couldn't get into it. Yeah. I think that's fair. Or something. That's fair. So I need some light books when I finish this little run right here. Yeah. I don't know why you're going to stick out Long Bright River, especially right now, especially on the heels of other failed dark books, <laughs> even if you did hear did a you, good Liz Moore interview. Like, I did. Oh, you did? So you know where mm-hmm. I'm headed with this. Yeah, I, I yeah, it's a, it's an interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just tell me if there's anything supernatural in it? Well, there's nothing supernatural in it, but I mean it's about heroin addicts and police detectives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's I mean it's a dark book, dark themes. Yeah. It's not going to be light. Yeah, no, that's fine. I I mean I expected that. I'll I'll give it some more time. I'm saying about 60 or 70 pages in, and I am liking it. I didn't know the author was so right. good. And just, you know, hearing about the interviews she did, that the place where it takes place is a real place, and she interviewed people who live there, and she's got addiction in her family. So it just it, – it was very compelling listening to her talk about it. So right. that's kind of why I did it. Do you have sunnier books in your – recent past i don't think so (laughs) so i finally read little fires everywhere by celesting i really liked it okay um i think the most issue that i had with it i think is it is told from a little bit of a remove i think i don't know what it is about these books that focus on the neighborhood that just sort of have this bird's eye view kind of almost choral feel to them where it's like the community is taking a look at the activities of of um of its inhabitants i know therese ann fowler did it in a good neighborhood which is going to be coming out at the beginning of march uh where she also has like a neighborhood taking a look at the activities of inhabit of its inhabitants so Little Fires Everywhere, I am reading in anticipation of watching the Hulu series with Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington. And it is about, um, it's about this family who, they have three children. I think the mother, no, they have four children. The mom is a reporter. 
for the local newspaper. You know, she's married her college sweetheart. And she rents, she has this little house that her parents have left her, which I think may have functioned as their starter house, but now it's sort of on the outskirts of this Quaker community, which is like all of their rules have been established with the view to living an orderly and orderly life. Like just everything in the community is color coordinated. Everything is supposed to be beautiful and to be appreciated. And it's supposed to, you know, according to Quaker thought, it's supposed to living in an ideal environment influences the behavior of the neighborhood. So they kind of pride themselves in not having issues that other communities might, you know, just in being, in being open and progressive. And so she rents her, her house out, but she has very specific thoughts and ideas about the kind of people who she wants to give an opportunity. You know, she wants to feel like she's being useful and, and doing something good or giving a particular family a break. So she chooses the inhabitants of this house that she rents out very carefully. One is an Asian man who she feels bad for because he somehow ends up in this country. He doesn't have a lot of relatives or, or friends. So she feels like she's doing him a favor by letting him live in her house. And then she rents it out to a mother whose name is Mia and her teenage daughter, Pearl. And the novel basically centers on the year that Mia and Pearl spend in this community. Like as the book opens, you know that they are not going to be there for the long term just because uh, the book starts with them leaving and it starts with, it starts with a house fire. And, you know, one of the questions is how did we get to the point where this fire was set and, and her tenants are leaving. So we kind of look back on the, I guess, nine months, six to nine months or whatever it is that this family stayed there. And I thought it was really interesting. What was really interesting to me is um, Mia and her daughter are very much nomads. You know, they've traveled. Mia is very into her art and she gets her inspiration from the towns that she lives in. And when she finds that she has completed whatever artistic project she has been working on, she moves to the next place. And she sort of exposed her daughter to this nomadic lifestyle. But once they get to this town, this, you know, Shaker Heights, uh, Mia has promised Pearl that they are going to stay put. And so, of course, you also know that that does not work out for for Pearl right in in the beginning of the story. And so they're, they're very different, you know, like she's had a different kind of lifestyle. They don't have a lot of possessions, just very much at odds with this community that has been created where, you know, Mia is attempting to give her daughter more stability and more of this, this life that she's never had. So I thought it was interesting the way it played out. I read an interview with Celeste Ng where she talks about she wishes that she felt like she was, she wanted to make the character of Mia black, which of course she will be in the Hulu series because she's played by Carrie Washington. But even though she's not in the novel, I mean, I think they're really described somewhat generically, but they are written as just at such odds with the community that, that they're trying to live in that even though she said she wishes that she would have been the person who could have, brought those characters to life, black characters. She didn't feel like she was the one to do it, but I just felt like it had that vibe of that anyway. So I'm really curious to see what they do, like the juxtaposition of the book to the movie. But Mm -hmm. I liked it. I liked it a lot. I can't remember why you didn't like it. Was it because you said you were looking more of it as an adoption story? And of course the adoption does play a big, big role in it but it's really comes about more between um i guess the contentious relationship between mia and and i forget the name of the lady who who rents the house who's the the mother but the reese witherspoon character um, oh yeah i mean it's been a while since i've read it so i can't 
Uh, yeah, I can't, I can't really think names. of her name. I feel like they have such a generic last name that maybe that's why I can't remember. I want to say that they were the Robinsons or the Jacks, you know, like something like that. Right. But the adoption part of it, piece of it gets really, uh, becomes a casualty, I guess, of this contentious relationship between these one, these women and basically warring ideals of self-realization. Yeah, that wasn't, I think, ultimately why I didn't like it that much. It, it is true that it's sort of billed as an adoption story and it ultimately isn't as much. Um, I think my issue was, and I got to be honest with you, it's, it has been a while since I read it. So this is going to be kind of hazy, but the main character, that the mom, I felt like her relationships with her children, especially the one that she had a you know pretty problematic relationship with, I just it didn't ring true to me. Like she was a, she was too extreme, and I felt like I didn't I couldn't relate to her at all. And I felt like she did things and said things that I didn't think made sense or that felt realistic to me. And I think that she is such a center part of the whole book that once I lost, once she lost credibility for me, I had a hard time kind of reining the book back in. I also didn't love her first book or the, or the, or the one I read before. I don't know if it's her first book, but the other book that she read, um, everything I never told you. And yeah, I think, I think she's only written those two. Okay. So I didn't love that one either. I, there's something, there's a coldness to her writing that leaves me feeling uh, disconnected from the book. And I think that's- I can definitely see that. This yeah. is kind of what I was saying, that there is a distance that she has, like this bird's eye view, sort of you see things that are going on, but just being very aware of you are looking through, you know, you're looking in through glass or something. Yeah. Um, so I also read you by Carolyn Kepnes, uh, you, the series was first adapted and it was on lifetime, I believe the first season and lifetime decided that they were not going to pick it up for season two. So Netflix bought and continued, you know, you could watch the entire first season on Netflix and they have season two. And from what I hear, uh, friends who have finished watching it, there is going to be a season three. So anyway, my book club this month's theme for February was a look at Tainted Love. And we decided to talk about you and to also talk about the series. So I read the book you and when I tell you that it is so, so much darker than the series. I mean, I guess. Oh, my God, the series. Was dark. Uh, yeah, the series is pretty dark. I think. The difference with the series is that you have the levity of just seeing the physical space. Like a lot of it, you see the streets of West Village. You see, I think, Brooklyn. You get a chance to see um, Beck's relationships with her friends. Um, even though Joe is always watching them, you get to see them have interactions with each other. And they also create these characters in each series where I think it's supposed to give him a little bit of a sympathetic and human side. In season one, there's Paco, who is his young neighbor, who is living um, with his mother, who's in an abusive relationship. And, you know, sometimes he, a lot of times he, is in the middle of that abusive relationship and Joe kind of takes him under his wing and helps him out. And I think that that is supposed to make him not seem as awful, but the book does no such thing. And you do not have the, you're just always in his head. Everything is from his point of view and he is pretty vile. <laughs> yeah. So I would say that I, this is the first time that I have liked or enjoyed the series as, as much as, or I enjoyed the series more than I enjoyed the book. Mm. I mean, I actively hated the book. Mm, <laughs> it was, interesting. It was a hard read. And I also listened to Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward. It is so good. Oh, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's the story of this 13-year-old boy in Mississippi who lives with his 
grandparents and his mother. He's but he's essentially being raised by his grandparents just because his mother is sort of selfish and very into her I I'm not I was never clear on whether he was her fiance or if he was her husband. Um but it is about a black family in Mississippi and you know she has a relationship with this with a white man who is connected somehow to the death of of her brother. So it's about all of the dynamics between those two families. It starts on her son Jojo's 13th birthday and during his birthday celebration they get a phone call that um his father Michael is being released from jail. And the rest of the story revolves around the trip that they take out to Parchman Prison in Mississippi to pick him up from jail and and the aftermath of this. You know, in the middle of this, his his grandmother is dying. His grandfather has this very tragic history that he has slowly been opening up to Jojo and telling. But, you know, it takes the course of the story for you to to realize all that has, I guess, transpired in in his life and the things that have driven his decisions. And it's such a good audiobook. It's such a good story. Like I can't recommend it enough. Uh, it, it and it was really good in audio. The, the audio is supposed to be so good. Yeah, I'm not sure if that that was the book of hers that Ron Charles was talking about that his wife had read. I think so. I'm not sure if it was this one or if it was the one before. I think it but is. she's been on my list for a long long time, so I, I'm tempted to read the first one on on or listen to the first one on audio too. And I also want to read her memoir The Men We Reaped, which is about all of the the deaths of the black men in her family. I think her brother was killed, maybe her father. But in that book she profiles five African American men and and the loss of them and what, you know, its effect on her life and and the community. So, all right. Well, that's what I've read. I feel like So like you, I'm casting about for a new audio and then I'm still working on finishing Brian Washington's short stories lot, which are also excellent. You could listen to so I've had some pretty good reading. You, some pretty good reading. You could listen to Sundown Motel. <laughs> I have that. I would probably read that. Yeah. I don't know if I would listen to it. Was it creepily told? I mean, I didn't get very far. No, not the very little that I listened to. But then I kind of looked it okay. up on Goodreads and I thought, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So did you have any items of literary news? Not really. Um, you know what happened that I that Mary Higgins Clark died? Oh, yeah. I think we talked about that, didn't we? At the beginning of February. No, I didn't know. Oh. I feel like she, she was such a cross crossover author for that when you start start reading adult books. like So they when I was do, list, looking at the read-up, the write-up of her or her short obituary, they say that she wrote these books that didn't have a lot of sex, didn't have violence, which I thought was really interesting because all of her books are about women being murdered. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's no gore in them, but they're always, they were always just like these grim stories of a series of females being murdered. And it was always someone who, I don't know, I just feel felt like her stories were unrealistic and the fact that it was usually just like some psychotic guy. And as we know, most women are killed by someone that they know. I've never and not never. not some not some random serial killer. You've never read Mary Higgins Clark, no, because that's not you know not my genre that I, I right. don't really read mysteries. Um, but boy, were but she had written fifty six books. <laughs> I know, I know, and I mean the lots of reaction upon her death for people who were very sad. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like you're probably the only one I've talked to who hasn't at some point read. <laughs> one Mary Higgins Clark book because they're such airport books and I know such bridge books I think from you know reading as a young adult to starting to read more adult fare like I don't know I just felt like the, she writes gateway books and the fact that she was still writing them over I mean over how many generations 56 books that's a lot did she write them all or were they did she sort of have a formula and did, were they were any of them ghost written 
I feel like the ones that later on in her life I would see co-writers on. I don't know. I feel like at one point maybe she was writing with her daughter. Like they may have co-written a few together. Uh, I get the feeling that she may have been, I don't think that she is as much a farm as James Patterson. I think 56 is doable. She was 92 when she died. So she wrote one a year. Wow. As opposed to James Patterson, who, you know, he has like 12 books come out every year. Right. Right. So it just doesn't even seem possible unless you've got someone else who's doing them with you. Right. Well, yeah. And he does. And is pretty open about it. Yeah. Like a lot of writers get their, have gotten their start from being a James Patterson ghostwriter, co-writer. Are you, have you read any of his books? Probably a long time ago. I would put him in the same version of Mary Higgins Clark for me, just, you know, probably 12 or 13 and, and starting to look at different types of books. Like those are probably the first adult books that I started to read, but I didn't stick with them. Yeah. It was like a reading a VC Andrews book. My God. <laughs> I still remember that book that I read, Flowers in the Attic. Oh, that oh was, you read that? Yes. I was, oh, you read that as an adult, though, didn't you? No, I think did I... Did you read that a few years back? No, I did not. No. I read that as a kid. It was so scandalous. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I couldn't really appreciate it then. I just was like, what is going on here? <laughs> Yeah, I don't, you, when you read books like that as, like I was into the V.C. Andrew books, I read a few of them and I thought they were very romantic, you know, never mind that people were hooking up with their brother in the attic because <laughs> their crazy mother has locked them away. <laughs> I mean, or she just always had these desperately sad heroines. Yeah. Well, that was the only one I read. I was like, that, mm. that's enough for me. I think I read My Sweet Audrina and whatever books came in that series. I read a, a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get to our ordinary people. Okay. Let's do it. Theme. All right. So I have four. How many do you have? I have a bunch, but I don't have to talk about them all. All right. Well, um, why don't you go first? I feel like my list has just been leading me to, well, one I just talked about was Sing Unburied Sing. I think the mother in that book is a waitress and Michael, her husband, if he's not a construction worker, I feel like he works on tanks or he works on some kind of rigs. You know, it's, they live in a rural part of Mississippi. The grandfather is a farmer. So they are very much, you know, people who, who are living ordinary lives. They're not getting into trouble and running away to the Hamptons to figure their stu stuff out. They are just right there in it. So, yeah. So I've already raved about that, mm -hmm. that one. Okay. And then recently I had read Blue Blurt, uh, Bluebird, Bluebird, which is, was about a police officer in East Texas, or he's a Texas Ranger. So he's very much about his job, uh, you know, not just a grittier life even though I think that his family, maybe that one isn't as appropriate just because I feel like in the series you discover that he comes, his family is actually wealthy and a wealthy black family who has made the choice to live in East Texas. And I think his uncles who have raised him had always encouraged him to, they wanted him to be a lawyer, but he really wanted to be a police officer as a way um, to be invited to participate or to join in as a Texas Ranger. And he's very proud of the fact that he is a black Texas Ranger, even though it gives him, he has very conflicted thoughts about the badge and police officer interference in African-American life. So that's two. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. Well, a lot of the books I picked here are ones that we've talked about on the show before. So they're not surprises. Um, the first one is Last Night at the Lobster by Stuart Onan. And I kind of reread my review of it. And it was kind of all about the fact that he turned literary fiction's eye toward a working person. So this is about 
a guy who is the manager at a Red Lobster restaurant that's closing. And I forgot somewhere in New England. I forgot where. It's like some suburb. And it's a freezing, cold, snowy night. And it's the last night that this restaurant is open. And he's going through his routines of opening it and getting ready for diners and you know, the, the, the drama is happening with the various, uh, people working at the restaurant and him kind of trying to get it done. And I, what I loved about this book is it, he had so much dignity to him despite the circumstances of what was going on. And despite that this, he was working at this red lobster and it was, you know, kind of a throwaway restaurant, like they like corporate had closed it. There was no character. There was no like history here. It was sort of this disposable restaurant. Um, but just about the pride he took in his job and getting into his head. And I thought that Onan did a great job with that. And I just, I loved the treatment of, of the character. I think his name was Manny. So that was like, when we decided on this topic, that was literally the first book that popped in my head because it's just such a perfect fit for it. Well, one that we read recently and we discussed on the show was such a fun age. Um, even though Alix, the employer was very wealthy. The main character, Amira, was not, I mean, she's employed as a babysitter. And I feel like we were constantly getting to see things through her eyes and how she's concerned about health health insurance and the fact that she's going to be turning 26 and will no longer be able to be on her parents' health insurance and trying to afford things, you know, the trips and the restaurants and activities that her friends want to participate in. I think it was one of the few novels that I remember where it really talked about being young and wanting to do things and, and having limitations and thinking about how it is that you're going to cover yourself in the basic ways. Yep, absolutely. Kind of her motivations for staying at that job. Right. And in fact, you know, the insurance was sort of, uh, other than her love for the daughter, her like right. entire motivation for being there was to have life, have health insurance. Right. To, I guess, prove herself enough that she would get enough hours that that would be possible. Right. So I also picked a book that we've read recently that I believe you read as well, Ask Again, Yes, by Mary Beth Keene, which is really about families of cops it's actually two generations of cops and they live in new york and a suburb of new york and um there's a fair amount about the the dangers of being a police officer and there's you know the the, the crux the incident that most of this book revolves around has to do with a gun that was procured from a police officer and, you know, that's a, that's a really big part of the ethos of at least three of the characters there. And then, of course, their wives and, you know, how they live with being married to police officers. You know, the inability to prevent violence and especially when it's happening right in your own house. So I loved this book. I think I liked it more than you did, but I loved it. And these characters just felt so relatable and real to me and the kind of working class nature of their lives really played a big part of the book. Right. So we read the real Michael Swan and I would argue that that was a lot of the plot of that was centered about the fact that this, what had had, what had been a successful salesman, he is has sort of become unmoored because things are not going well in his career. And he has been looking for a job. I think the family has been squeezed to see if they are going to be able to continue the lifestyle that they had. And he gets caught up when a bomb goes off in Grand Central. And people believe that he, you know, he is the suspect, the bomber, uh, who's suspected of committing this crime. And a lot of the tension of the book is sort of, is this something that he has done? Is this, what has he gotten himself involved with? Because his job has been precarious. Is is this something that is possible for him uh, to have, is, is this a crime that he would have committed? You know, I think is one of the things that runs 
through his wife and what the police are investigating to see why he would have been involved in such a crime. Mm -hmm. So that one. And then of course there's the nickel boys by Colson Whitehead. Mm. Yes. Much is made of the fact that there, when her grandson is sent to this institution, his grandmother is not able to, she's not in the financial circumstances to be able to afford him the best lawyer the people that she does hire, it is, it's questionable whether they really were able to devote the attention and care that, that would have, would have helped lessen his sentence or anyway, that was a main driver of, you know, him meeting with his grandmother. And I think her feeling guilt for the fact that she isn't able to provide a way out for him. I would also argue that the second half of the book is very much about everyday lives. I forgot what mm -hmm. the profession was in New York. Construction, no? Yeah. Uh, no, or did he start a moving company? Moving company, right. Right. But there was a lot of I think that he that. started out as a mover and just built, it built himself up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, he, they were regular people. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot about the satisfaction that he drew from building that business and being successful and kind of the slow steady growth of you know of the company and i thought that was also very compelling so what else did you have so i have uh j ryan straddle's logger queen of minnesota which i have talked about on the show already and that is a book about two sisters who well, one of whom goes into the beer making business and actually gets quite successful at it. So she's not necessarily the one that came to mind for me when we talked about this topic, but it was her sister who worked in a nursing home and made pies and um, had had a sort of a string of jobs like that. They're very sort of small, small town jobs in Minnesota and how she had built this life around this series of jobs, either working in a diner or working in the nursing home and her life kind of centered around baking. But it was about the great satisfaction that she drew from that job. And then she kind of reconciles with her estranged sister later and the beer making aspect of it comes into it a lot more, but there's a lot of very sort of small breweries that are part of it too, that are not these big factory, you know, super fancy things. So um, we talked about this with him when he was on the show, the how much he enjoys depicting characters with everyday jobs and really getting into their psyche. And I think Lager Queen does a great job with that. Right. Kitchens of the Great Midwest, I know. <laughs> I got you brought it up, it's not me. similar Right. I, yeah, you just definitely substituted his latest book. <laughs> well, Kitchens, um, I don't know if Kitchens, because the main character in Kitchens becomes this world famous chef. Um, okay. And there's definitely characters throughout Kitchens who are leading smaller lives. But the main character there that is the thread that runs through the whole book, she does become someone pretty famous. And she has this very refined set taste to her. So I, that one didn't, didn't jump it into my mind the way Lager Queen did for this topic. Okay. So one that I've read recently and talked about on the show was The Current by Tim Johnson. And that one is about these two college students who go into a river, I believe in Idaho and much is made of the fact that two uh, that another woman had drowned in this river 10 years before. And the book takes a look at this town, which is just a sleepy town in Idaho where everyone has, you know, very regular jobs. So it's about real life. It's about a sheriff who's dying of cancer. And one of his, uh, his daughter is actually one of the girls who goes into the river. And of course he he's a retired sheriff. So he wants to be more involved in the case than he has the opportunity to be. And it is about the friendship too, of two characters who opened a body shop together. One of their sons is 
his name is Danny and he is suspected of having some involvement in with one of the the with the initial woman who had gone into the river. So it's just all about these small town relationships and suspicions that have been harbored over the past 10 years that have been simmering in this small town that come to a head when these two additional college students go into this river and it and you know the investigations just stir up old rivalries and old suspicions in getting to the heart of the mystery of of the of these women who have ended up in this river like i think the college girls their car gets rear-ended into the river after they have this harrowing encounter with two boys at a gas station and before that the initial woman who went into the river was a young troubled young woman who ends up in the river but you find out that she had water in her lungs when she went in so when she Mm. went into the river she ended up drowning there but definitely ordinary people small town life um i would it put it with like how you characterize a Stuart Onan just taking a, a literary fiction view of small town life, you know, these sheriffs and and people who are connected to this this crime. I feel like a lot of the stories that feature regular working class characters usually are sometimes it is the police procedural or detective stories who tend to investigate crimes against people who were not wealthy, or I've read a lot of immigrant stories or African-American stories where people are not necessarily depicted as, as bankers or having old money or getting some elite education, which I feel like probably makes up the other half of my reading. (laughs) Yeah. Which do you like better? What do you mean? Do you prefer reading about people like you or people not like you? Oh, I think I like both. I mean, I have a fair amount from both. Like, I like to see how other people live. When I think about it, Golden Child by Claire Adam. You know, you said that you couldn't come up with a lot of books, but the books that I'm mentioning, we both read. And that is about a family in Trinidad who is a very normal family who grow up with two twin boys or who are very different from each other. And it's all about how their parents view them. And But that one I'm not sure I would put in this category because the father worked for – he had a pretty good job. Like, didn't he work for a big company? He was traveling a lot. No, the father, I wouldn't, he was traveling, he worked in an oil refinery. Oh yeah, the oil refinery. But I thought like he was, was in a big management. company there. Like I thought he. No, he wasn't in management. He was a worker. Okay. Maybe I'm confusing. I don't, and I don't know that I would say that you can't be in management. Right. I don't, I mean, I would not. Yeah, I think he, a lot of the book was about his struggles for money and them. True. In making that what decisions they made, they were they were were financial and how they were gonna how it affected the lives of their boys. Yeah, that's true. I yeah, I didn't think they had it easy at all. I thought the brother it seems like there were other f- members of their family that were wealthier, but he well, there was, was always uncle. concerned about money. Well there was Yeah, there, there was, was the an uncle. uncle that helped them out. Yeah. And I think you're right that there was a brother who seemed to have money. Right. Yeah. Well, the last book that I picked is not really literary fiction. Um, I picked Things You Save in a Fire by Catherine Center. And we interviewed Catherine um, at the end of last year. And she, do you remember she had a genre that she called her books romantic something or? Right. Uh, there was some term that she is so not literary fiction. And I wouldn't put this in the same category as like a Stuart Onan or, you know, someone who is putting these regular lives through a literary fiction lens. But this is about a firefighter, a woman firefighter who lives in Austin and is forced to move to Massachusetts for personal reasons. 
And it's it's all about being a firefighter. And there's a lot of detail. And I know she did a lot of research when she wrote this book. A lot of detail about what it's like to be a firefighter, what it's like to be a woman firefighter, kind of the daily life, the daily routines and the struggles that they go through. And so that that popped into my head too with this category. Do you feel like you have a preference? Do you think you prefer to read about people who are like you? No, I actually think I prefer to read about people who are not like me. I find it more interesting. Although, I don't know, I just read that Silicon Valley book, Uncanny Valley, which is about <laughs> someone working at a tech startup. That was super fascinating to me because I could relate to you know so much of what she did. But um, no, I think I prefer to read about people who are not like me. I don't know. I get tired but of rich New Yorkers. But you had trouble with this topic. Yeah. I know. I thought I was going to have trouble with it. But then the more I thought about it, it, w- it turned out to be easier than I expected. I don't know. The, the rich New Yorkers gets a little old after a while. Like the, the kind of Alix character from such a fun age. I mean, it's fun to read, but like sometimes I find it tiresome. And sometimes I find it like it makes me feel bad about myself because I'm like, well, I don't, I don't measure up to that. And, you know, I don't know. Like sometimes it's more fun to read about people that you're not like trying to see yourself in them at all. You're just getting 100% into their lives and seeing it from their perspective and I think I grow more as a person reading about other people's lives very different from mine than I do reading about, you know, well-educated people, like lawyers or something like that. I don't know. That's so interesting. And I've been reading, I was reading this article that just taught, it was talking a lot about empathy and how much has been said about the fact that books encourage empathy Mm -hmm. and but this article was questioning whether that was true or not, Why? which is where you get into characterizations like American Dirt or, you know, are people really reading and coming away with an experience? Like, why is it that in order to feel for someone else, you have to feel like you have felt all their pain or, mm. you know, just why are so many stories that people gravitate to sort of trauma porn? They're awful. Mm, like you, why can't, why and are you we feel like capable of mustering empathy without actually having like read about it kind of? Or right. Or, or read about such an extreme, like, mm. like you have to be able in order to experience empathy for someone, you have to physically, we're saying we, you have to physically put yourself into their situation in order to empathize. And is that really true? And is that really empathy? It was well, a very long article. I would have to read it again <laughs> to see what it was that I thought about it. Yeah, But it was, it was kind of interesting just when I think about sometimes how I view slave narratives or how I view stories that do seem to undermine uh, or to mine the worst that seem to require that people open up a vein of their pain for you to say, oh, yes, I see you as human, especially when it comes to slavery narratives or, I don't know, just these narratives that seem like people enjoy when it's just like the more painful, the more horrible, the more, oh, I can sympathize Mm. when it, it just does not seem like it should take that much for well, let me you give you, to be able to consider someone else's humanness, humanity. Let me give you another example that's maybe a slightly different version of empathy. So not so much the like the humanity, but like one of the books I read um, in the last few years was This Is How It Always Is by Lori Frankel. And it's about parents of a transgender daughter. And I think back to that book a lot because... I think, you know, transgender has become so much more common that that kids who are transgender are feeling much more comfortable coming out and and living their lives and and adults. And I, you know, I know people who have come out recently and changed their gender. And I think, especially from the parenting perspective, that book gave me a lot of perspective on what that's like, because I, I, I have never lived that. And it's not a question of needing to, um, have read about it in order to understand that it would be difficult, but it just to have read it in such a detail, I think just allowed me to think about how complicated it is and how hard it is as a parent. And, 
you know, what would you do in those situations? And would you have responded the same way? And could you be unfailingly supportive? And how would you tell your friends and your larger community about it? So that's a, maybe a different type of empathy, but it's it's given me skills to put my to sort of un, to look at someone and see think about what they may be going through that I wouldn't have if I hadn't read those books. Well, I don't know if like you're saying it's a little different. I don't know if I would say that that's comparable. You know, parenting skills, how to be more open or how to be more careful in talking to your children, as opposed to, I think what I'm talking about and what maybe some of the American Dirt controversy was about is offering up people's pain as the only way that you can experience their humanity, like not relating mm, to them as yeah. a parent, yeah, I see but saying, saying, oh yeah, you're, you've been through this awful, awful thing and now I can deem you as someone who is worthy of personhood or humanity. Yes. I think that's a very different thing. Yeah. And I know I can see what you're saying. Um, I don't know. I want to find that article and read it again because it did, it did, you know, make me think a lot about what we hear mm -hmm. in terms of, yeah, you know, books. I mean, because if books did provide people with so much empathy, then I feel like a lot of things in life that are problematic, you know, we are still we're still in the middle of the same thing. So I'm not sure how much we're, what the takeaway is from that and how, you know, is empathy something that gives you that feeling of, oh, I know what that feels like, or, oh, I can feel sympathy or, oh, I can shed a tear. But is that really translating to the people that you meet and right. how you experience life or the things that you advocate for? Because I think it's really easy it's very easy to be empathetic if you're always in your same comfortable environment and it doesn't require anything of you other than, oh, I shed a tear when I read this book mm -hmm. or I found that really touching. Mm -hmm. Well, when you do find it, send it to me because I'd like to read it. And also I will put it on the show notes. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So we'll continue to pay attention to this topic. I had a bunch of other books that, you know, where people are living ordinary lives. I think I read a balanced amount because like you said, there's only so many rich <laughs> New Yorkers, you know, I'm so unhappy I'm going to Nantucket for the summer to find right. myself books that you want to read. Yeah, like there's <laughs> only so many Fleischmanns you can do at one time. <laughs> right. So until next time, happy reading. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Readerly Report. You can find all of our shows on iTunes or at thereaderlyreport.com. Please join our Facebook group, Readerly Report Readers, where you can talk to other listeners about their reading life. You can also find Nicole at nicolebonia.com and me, Gail, at everydayiwritethebookblog.com. Finally, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes and told your book-loving friends about us. Thanks. 